And if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians chapter 4. And uh, we've been in this chapter, uh, not consecutively, we had a little break there when the pandemic first struck, but uh, we've had three weeks in this chapter. And as we come to today's text, it's important what Paul is talking about here. Now, the larger setting, and I'm not going to get into a detailed background here, but the, the larger setting here is this is a church that Paul cares very much about. He spent a very short time there, was separated from them by an edict, we believe, to be kicked out of the city that Jason might be released. So Paul leaves with the missionary team, but he wants to get back. He wants to check on this church, and he's concerned for it. There's persecution going on, and the church is not well-established in the sense of it doesn't have a, a long track record. It's a very young church in the faith. And so Paul is concerned for them, and we know that he sent Timothy back, and Timothy checked on them and brought back a report, and many believe maybe even a letter with him that had some questions. Whether or not a letter is necessary, I'm not sure. Timothy could have brought their questions back in person uh, instead of a letter. But whatever the case, there's some questions. And Paul is working through some of these things. He's told them how much he loves them, how much he misses them, how he never wanted to be separated from them. And as he was separated from them, how he thought day and night about them and prayed day and night for them. Paul is greatly desiring to see them again. I feel that as you would read this letter, as we have read through this letter, you would sense Paul's great desire to be reunited with his spiritual children in Thessalonica. Paul has a strong desire for that. And he's walked through in this fourth chapter how we're to live out the faith that we are called to. And Paul has told them to abound more and more in what they're already doing. Paul has said, you've gotten off to a good start. Unlike the Galatians, you haven't been tripped up. Keep running for God's glory. Continue to live out the will of God. And what is the will of God? Well, particularly, Paul says here, your sanctification. Now, we looked at that last Sunday, didn't we? F.F. Uh, F. Bruce had said that God's will certainly is not broader than that. I mean, God's desire is that we would be sanctified, that we would be made holy. That is why he's justified us. He has saved us that we might be made holy. And ultimately, in glory, we will be holy. But the process now in which we are called is sanctification. Having been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk in holiness. Not perfectly. We fail, we struggle, but we are being conformed. The process is happening. It's, we are being conformed to the image of Christ. And so we recognize that. So Paul says a chief part of that sanctification is what? That we would abstain from sexual immorality. Now, we looked at that last Sunday. And Paul gave us a number of reasons that we should abstain. First of all, it's God's will that we would abstain from sexual immorality. But also, it's not loving toward our brother. And also, we haven't been called to immorality. We've been called to holiness. So there's all these reasons given. And one of the chief reasons is that you've been given the Holy Spirit. You've been made uh, new in Christ Jesus. You have the Spirit indwelling you. You are, therefore, no longer to live in sin. You've been set free from slavery to sin and death. You've been set free now to live as a bondservant to Christ. And so, my friends, we come to this idea today of how we continue to live out our faith in Christ. And today's sermon is called Concerning Brotherly Love, because Paul begins this section saying, but concerning brotherly love. So it's not hard to find a title here, is it? 
I didn't have to have deep thought about this. It was right there in the text. We are called to brotherly love. And so I want to read the text again. It's short. And then I want us to dive into our three points. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, in all of Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we have commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. The word of the Lord. Amen. As we look at this text today, I want us to look at three points. First of all, it is obedience to God's will. What is brotherly love? Well, it is obedience to God's will. God has called us to live in brotherly love one toward the other. Second of all, it also means desiring to live peaceably. We can't be a people of brotherly love if we don't desire to live at peace with one another. And lastly, it desires maintaining a good witness. Paul is very concerned that believers living in brotherly love maintain a good witness toward those outside. So beginning first with the idea that it is uh, obedience to God's will, that is clear. It is God's will that we live in brotherly love one toward the other. I don't think that anybody could make the argument against that. It's clear throughout the scriptures. We are called to be a people of love. Why? Because we are to be like our Heavenly Father, and God is a God of love. God is a God of love, and therefore we are called to be a people of love. Now, we have gone to great extent through the years to say that the picture of godly love is not the world's love. Many people would say, oh, I read the Bible, I don't see a loving God. Well, they don't understand this God. They don't understand this revelation. They are using the world's standard of love, which is a very selfish standard of love. But we are called to be a loving people, to have God's love at the center of our existence and to live out our life of faith in love toward other people. Now, that isn't just a general statement. It's found throughout the Bible. In just the New Testament, Christ three separate times in the upper room discourse mentions that we are to be a people of love. He says that we are to love one another as he has loved us that we will be known by our love one toward the other, that that is how the world will recognize us as his, that we have that love in us and we show it toward each other. You can think of another place where this is demonstrated. In Mark chapter 12, listen to this text, starting in verse 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all. In other words, which is the primary commandment? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. My friend, Jesus boiled the entirety of the law down to two statements. The law pictures loving God with everything you have, 
and loving your neighbor as you love yourself. So my friends, from the very beginning, we can see that we are commanded. These are not optional statements. These are not try statements. These are commands. We are commanded to love one another, to love God with all of our heart, mind, spirit, everything we have, but also to love one another. And as Christ said, as he has loved us, we're not left out in left field without an example to follow. Christ is our example in this. He pictures the love of God because he is God in the flesh and he has shown us what it means to love and to love sacrificially. And so we see here the call to which we are called. Now it's interesting because as Paul writes this, he says, now on this, I don't even need to write about it. This helps us, I think, with what we looked at last Sunday, the sexual immorality. The question was, the sexual immorality part was, was Paul writing about a specific problem in Thessalonica or just the general statement that he would send to any church? Well, I think there must have been a problem in Thessalonica. I said this in the sermon, that there must have been in the temple festival some draw for some of the Christians to compromise their faith and to engage in immorality. And I can base that on what we see here. Paul says, I'm writing this to you, but I don't even really need to write this to you. In other words, this is not a large problem in the church. This is not a large problem amongst you. In fact, you are examples of the opposite. You are an example of what it means to live in brotherly love. He didn't say that about the sexual immorality, did he? He didn't say, I don't really even need to write this to you. So there must have been something going on that made Paul think he needed to write what we saw last Sunday, but not as much what we see today. Now, it doesn't mean, by the way, that there is no problem in Thessalonica with brotherly love. I think that there is. In what Paul says here, there are examples of how they're beginning to live in ways that do not put the other greater than themselves or do not esteem others greater than themselves. There are some issues, but they're not widespread. And in fact, if there was ever a church that exemplified what it meant to live in brotherly love, it was the church at Thessalonica. They exhibited this love that we call Philadelphia or Philadelphia, right? This love that is a brotherly love, a familial love. This love is a love, by the way that you had for your family members, a love that was like a brother to a brother or a a sister to a sister, that kind of love in which even though they may annoy you at times, even though they may step on your toes, you love them. You don't write them off as someone who wronged you one time, but you say, that's my brother, that's my sister. I love them, though sometimes the road is rocky. That is the standard of love to which the church is called, to love one another despite the fact that sometimes we butt heads, sometimes we take offense, sometimes maybe even inadvertently we hurt our brother or sister. We are called to be a people who live in love toward one another, who live in love toward one another. And that's why it's important to think about that when Paul wrote this letter to Thessalonica, he was thinking of this love, Philadelphia, this love that is a brotherly love. So Paul says that. You need to continue in what you're already doing. In fact, he says uh, something very important to them. It's great that you're living it out. We've commanded it, but you're actually doing it. As Leon Morris said in his commentary, it's one thing to know something. It's another thing to actually do it. There are many things that we know we ought to do, but we don't put into practice. Here, this church knew it and was doing it. And so Paul is thankful for that. But notice he tells them to continue even more. 
That would remind us of what we see at the beginning of this chapter where he he tells them that they should abound more and more in what they're doing. Here's another example. You are loving one another. Continue in it. Abound more and more in it. Increase continually in it. Take what you're already doing and do it even more so. Now, why is this important? Why particularly in Thessalonica is it important? Well, first of all, we already said it's the command of God. If it's God's command, it doesn't matter if we can find importance to it, right? If God has commanded us to do it, we are to do it. But there are obvious reasons why it would matter in Thessalonica. As we saw, there was a riot against the church. The church had been disrupted. People had been imprisoned, or at least we know Jason had been imprisoned. There had been kind of a sweeping up of the Christians, and Paul and the missionary team had to leave. And Paul's concern was, would that persecution continue? Can you imagine the divides that had occurred in town? Maybe even amongst families. The people pushed Christians away. They were separated, maybe within their own family, as people said, oh, you're part of that? I want nothing to do with you. You see, the church became a family. We look back in the earliest days of the church, they were committed together, committed to each other, because they were family together. Because oftentimes the believers lost their family. Now, this is not some abstract idea. We see it in our, in our own world today. In Muslim nations where a person accepts Christ or believes in Christ, trusts in Christ, their family may throw them to the curb, have nothing to do with them, reject them utterly. The church must function as a family to love one another, to accept one another in its family, to be committed to one another. That's why it's important. And that's why Paul sees in Thessalonica, it is of the utmost importance. And if we say, well, Thessalonica was bad, but remember, the entire Macedonian experience for Paul had been like this. Initial success and then great opposition. Everywhere Paul went, Christians were put on the margins. Now, we could go into great depth about this, couldn't we? About how that would live itself out in the early church with people losing jobs because of their faith. People not being allowed in the marketplace because they wouldn't uh, make the guild offering or, or pledge to the particular God of that guild or that market. It cost people their living. It cost people their family. It cost them comfort. It cost them something to be a Christian. Paul says you must love them, nurture them, take care of them. If they've lost their job, be there, help support them. That's going to come back to play later in this text but notice Paul says the reason I don't need to teach you anything on this is you had a better teacher than even the apostle Paul now Paul was a pretty good teacher Paul was a great man of God but there is a preferable way to be taught and that's by God himself and that's what Paul says here look at the text you'll see it he says right there but concerning brotherly love you have no need that I should write to you for you yourselves are taught by God, to love one another. You were taught by God. And that's what Paul says, you were taught directly by God. Now, what does he mean by this? What does he mean you were taught by God? Well, first of all, you were taught in the example of the person and work and life of Christ. We quoted just earlier from the Upper Room Discourse where Christ gave three instances or three commands to love one another. So there's an example taught by God, taught by Christ, the God-man, but also we shouldn't forget that the 
way that we live out our love in Christ is through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I quote this, it seems like every week, but it's such an important and key text. In Romans, Paul tells us that the love of God was poured into our hearts, shed abroad in our hearts by the power of the Spirit who's been given to us. When you were saved, when you were regenerated by faith through the grace of God, you had the love of God poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. So whatever love you have towards your brothers, it ultimately is a gift from God. And so again, I think Paul could say, you've been taught how to love. You're given the ability to love. You've been taught how to love. You've seen the example of love in Christ Jesus. God has gifted you in this way. And therefore, there's nothing more I can give you other than to tell you, live it out. You've been given the tools. You've been given the instructions. Now you must do it. It's like you get a bookcase that you've purchased, and it has the directions in it. It has all the the parts that you need. Well, what's left to do? Simply follow those directions and put it together. Sometimes that's more challenging uh, than it seems, and maybe for some it's more challenging than for others. And so it is with brotherly love. We've all been given the instructions. We've all been given the tools. Will we utilize them? It may be hard for you. It may be more difficult for you than for me or more, maybe more difficult for me than for you, but we are still called to that same end, to live out our calling as those who love our brothers and sisters in the faith. So my friends, if we are going to live out the life that we are called to live, it will be in obedience to God's will as we love one another. But it's also as a people who desire to live peaceably. We are called to live peaceably. Now, many scholars point out that Paul has some paradoxical language here. Paradoxical language. If you look at verse 11, it says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life. Now, in the Greek, that gets really interesting. That you aspire to live quietly. Uh, J.B. Phillips said, that's like saying that you have an ambition that you would have no ambition. Another commentator said, it's like seeking restlessly to be still. And that's what Paul says here, that you would be earnest, that you would seek diligently, that you would be at peace. That's a paradoxical idea, isn't it? To to seek hard after something and yet to be at peace. And yet Paul says that's how you're to live. Work diligently, seek hard hard after a peaceful life. Now that isn't at odds with what Paul says elsewhere. Paul in Romans chapter 12 tells us to love one another. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. My friends, there is a a lot of wisdom in those verses, isn't there? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Celebrate with those who celebrate. A, A joy for one of my brothers is a joy for all of my brothers. If something good happens for my wife or my children, I rejoice in it. It doesn't take away any of their joy. It adds my joy to theirs. My friends, you know how the world looks at these things. As you celebrate, I get depressed, right? That's the way the world does things. I don't want good to happen to you. I want it to happen to me in your place. 
It's almost as if something good happens to you. It was stolen from me. That's not reality. No, when it's your family, you recognize that something good for one is something good for all. Paul says, live like that in the church. Every joy doubled. That's the picture of marriage, right? If my wife can rejoice, I rejoice with her. But that's true of the family. If my son or my daughter rejoices, I rejoice with them. But it's also true of the uh, church family, isn't it? If one of us has something to rejoice in, we all have something to rejoice in because we are interested in each other. We seek good for each other. But my friends, the, the flip side of that is true as well. Paul says, weep with those who weep. A person in the church who weeps is not left to weep alone. But their brothers and sisters come around them. Just as if my wife is upset over something, I seek to comfort her, seek to bear part of that load. Same with our children, right? As, as a family, uh, with our children, if they are heartbroken, we seek to find some way to help them, to lessen that burden. My friends, so it is in the church. If we can seek to lessen the burden on one another, that's what we are called to do. But as we come to what Paul is really getting at there and here, what does he say? As much as it rests in your ability, live peaceably one with the other. So there is this picture of brotherly love, right? Uh, don't be high-minded. Don't, uh, don't be at odds with one another. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. But ultimately, be at peace as much as it rests in your ability to decide. There are times it doesn't. There are times that you can seek peace with another person and they will not have peace with you. There are times that you'll do everything you can to live peaceably, but others won't live with you. My friends, we can't control that. Paul tells us that in Romans, but as far as it is up to us, we should seek to live peaceably. So Paul's paradoxical language is not unusual here. We are to seek hard after peace. We are to chase peace, look for it, work to achieve it, aspire to have it. My friends, I think our churches have failed largely in this, to this end, haven't they? Not just in the days of Paul, but throughout the history of the church. I heard a part of a message from uh, Armand Tomasian, who was talking about how the church is in a modern position in which it cannot follow this command. It doesn't make it sin, uh, any less sinful to, to disobey what God says here, but it's easy today. He made the point that a few hundred years ago, you were born in the same church and you died in the same church. You lived your whole life in that same church. It might have been the only church within a reasonable distance of where you lived. And as he said, if you had a disagreement, you had to learn to work it out. You had to learn to work it out. There was no other option. Now, if somebody gets a little upset, what do they do? They pack up their stuff. They move down the road to the next church. Maybe things go well there, and then they move on to the next church. My friends, God calls us not to be that way. God calls us to commit to one another, to love one another. Now, there are disagreements that are of such a substantial uh, level that we cannot live peaceably within them. If you were a member of a church that said, we are not saved by God's grace, if they were to say the, the word of God is not inerrant, it is not God's word, it is questionable, then my friends, I think you'd be right to say, I can't be a part of this. I've got to move on. But my friends, so often what divides Christians are matters way down the list, tertiary matters, matters that do not matter in terms of 
whether or not you are a Christian, whether or not you are a fellow believer, but uh, just oftentimes small matters. We've spoken before. I read once that a church, a big church, had been split over a slice of ham served at a fellowship meal. Now, my friends, that is nonsense. I can't even imagine what Paul would say about that. We are called to live in love, and love involves respect. Whatever these matters are that divide people, oftentimes a lack of understanding and respect are at the core of it. We are called to love one another, to respect one another, to esteem the other greater than self. That is what respect is, to esteem the other as greater than self. Now, that's been throughout all of what Paul has said in this chapter. All that Paul has said in this fourth chapter has been based on that. Notice that one of the primary points about why you do not engage in sexual immorality is it defrauds your brother. And I went into depth on that last Sunday. I'm not going to today. If you didn't hear it last Sunday, go back and listen to that one. But it defrauds your brother. It cheats your brother. It is not brotherly love. If the woman that you are having uh, an affair with, if she is married, then you are defrauding her husband. That is not brotherly love. And if she is not yet married, you're defrauding her, her future husband of what is rightfully his. My friends, Paul says there is no way in which you can engage in sexual immorality and not defraud your brother. And therefore, you cannot live out a life like that and be in obedience to God's command to love your brother. It's not possible. And so we need to recognize that. Paul says it goes even further than that. Brotherly love means you won't take advantage of your brother. In the case that he gives here, there's much debate over it. You can look at this text and you can look at 2 Thessalonians and you'll find that there's something going on in which Paul is called to say, uh, if they will not work, let them not eat. And there's debate about how this came about. Uh, Gene Green in his commentary says it deals with the patronage system of uh, ancient Greece. I don't think he's right about that. It just doesn't strike me that that's what Paul is talking about. Paul, in the first part here on sexual immorality, says... Uh, don't be like the Greeks. Don't be like the pagans. Don't engage in what the pagans engage in. Why not say that here? The pagans have this entire social strata and patronage system. Don't involve yourself in it. He doesn't say that. I don't think that's what it is. What is it? Well, I think something is going on here. Many people think it has to do with the return of Christ. They think it's imminent. And so they say there's no point in working anymore. There's no point in, in uh, providing There's no point in doing anything. Christ is coming back. I'm not sure that's it either. I think it could just simply be that there are people who are taking more from the church than they're putting in. And I think what Paul says is that's not how it should be normally. We said earlier, if there's someone who's lost their job for their walk in Christ, it is not optional that you take care of them. It is the command of God that you take care of them. If they have lost their livelihood because of their walk in Christ, My friends, you have a duty to make sure they're taken care of. To love your brother, to to encourage his stand in the faith, to help him out. That's not optional. That is our calling to do. But what about the brother that just doesn't want to work? What about the, the man who says, well, you know, I'm just not wanting to work right now. Can you continue to take care of me? Paul gives a definitive answer to that. The call of the Christian is to what? Give toward the work of God, whether that is through our actions, finances. I believe it's through all those things that we are called. Whatever way God has gifted us, we are to participate in the work of God. 
And what Paul says is there may be times where you are on the receiving end of that, uh, of the church's charity. But it ought to be the normal practice to be part of giving to the church of charity. If that means that you need to be productive, you need to be at work, you need to be one who is giving, not taking constantly. If you're taking constantly, there's a problem. Now, if it is that uh, the church evaluates the situation and you are in a dire situation and you need the church's support, maybe you have a a health issue or or something that uh, would not allow you to ever uh, give back to the church or be a part of the work of the church, but uh, would need the support of the church, then Paul says, then that needs to be there. But my friends, it ought to be the desire and will of believers because it's the call of God to do this, to be those that bless the church, bless the work of Christ, who contribute to it. So my friends, I think what Paul says here is there are some who are taking advantage of the charity of the church. Uh, We've thought for some time that there was some wealthy people in the church at Thessalonica. I think that is true. I think that's why the synagogue was so upset about seeing them leave. Because oftentimes the God-fearers were the good supporters of the church. And so it may be that in the life of the church, there had been some who had said, hey, these can take care of us. It doesn't matter if we continue, continue to contribute. But what Paul says is it should be the desire of the believer to be employed, to be at work, to be serving, and to be giving for the glory of God. That should be our desire, that we would be able to work in such a way as to bless others. I got to speak to a young man just yesterday who was talking about how uh, through this whole pandemic, he's been able to continue working. And he said, I have to thank God for that. Why? Well, first of all, he doesn't become a burden to others. We should be thankful that we're not a burden to others. But on top of that, what a joy it is if beyond not being a burden to others, we can actually give and contribute to the work of God and be a blessing to others who are in need. This is the perfect time to see that, isn't it? During a pandemic where so many people have lost their job, we should be thankful that uh, if we have the ability to continue earning a living, that way we can not only not be a burden on others, but we can actually be a blessing to the church. We can continue to give. We can help those who have lost their job. Maybe there's someone in, in a congregation that has lost their job through this and needs support temporarily. I think Paul would say that's your duty to be there for them. But if, my friends, it's just that they don't want to contribute and they want to take constantly, Paul says, you've got no obligation there. If we didn't read that in 1 Thessalonians, we're certainly going to read that in 2 Thessalonians, where Paul says, if they will not work, let them not eat. So, my friends, we need to recognize that the ultimate argument Paul is making here is that's not brotherly love. That's not brotherly love. Brotherly love puts the other's interests first, desires that we might have an income, that we might be givers, not takers. Now, again, friends, theologically, we are takers, right? We have not ever contributed anything to our salvation. But Paul says, in your Christian life, you're to be givers to each other because you have been those who have been given what you could not earn. Because of God's grace in saving you, show extravagant love to others. Be there for others. Respect one another. My friends, that brings us to our third and final point. All of this is that we might desire to maintain a good witness. Now, we're not charitable. We don't show brotherly love only as a a means of a witness. But Paul says we ought to have in mind that we should desire to be good witnesses. You know, if a family squabbles at home, and I'm sure all families have squabbles at home, but it stays within the 
the house, doesn't it? Those matters that we might argue over or divide over in the home, those things are our matters, our family matters that we are discussing and debating. It looks really ugly if a family does that in the middle of a restaurant, doesn't it? If a family raises its voice and gets into a fight in the restaurant or imagine in church on a Sunday morning, they're sitting here having a fight in the pews of the church, an argument over something. It looks ugly. There are things that are, that are natural to human beings. There are uh, arguments that are natural to human beings that are not uh, good for the public view. doesn't mean we're hypocrites. It means that you understand what's appropriate. There are debates and arguments that we might have <clears throat> in private that we would not have in public. Paul says, these things affect our witness. Can you imagine being in the middle of a restaurant and getting mad over something and having an argument, and then people go, wait a minute, don't they go to church over at the church across the street? What kind of witness is that? Does anyone think, oh, Christianity looks really attractive here? My friends, we need to recognize what Paul is saying. If we don't live in brotherly love, we don't set a good witness for the larger community around us. As bad as bad behavior is inside the church, it is made far worse when it spills out publicly. There will be disagreements in churches. I mean, I feel like we've been blessed to have such a long streak without problems, without any kind of serious problems. But there are debates that emerge from time to time, different priorities, different ideas that emerge from time to time. We have to learn to settle those things. When they divide and they become nasty and it gets out into the community, the witness of the church is hurt, hurt seriously. We've seen it. And so we have to recognize that we must avoid this. We must recognize that we are called to live in brotherly love and we must live in brotherly love. What can, you, what can set a, a worse example for the community than a church that doesn't do this or a church of people who are in sexual immorality? My friends, every time we see a report of, of sexual morality linked to a church, it's played up in the news, isn't it? Said as, oh, look at these hypocrites. That we've got to protect our witness. We've got to protect it by uh, living the way we're called to live. And that means living apart from sexual immorality, but it also means something else. Living responsibly. Living a life that is upright living in a way that we're contributing to the community, that we desire, even if we're not able to in the present moment, that we desire to be givers, not takers, in whatever way we can be. I thank God for so many of our women that are shut-ins, who, though they're not able to be here, they are still praying for the church. They're still praying for the ministry of this church. They're still praying for all of us who are able to meet here. You see, what that shows you are there are ways that you can be a contributor. There are so many of our people who find a way to be a contributor to the church for God's glory, to support the fellowship. That is what Paul is talking about here, that we are to find ways that we can be an asset to our church and to our community. When Paul spoke about living at peace as much as is up to you, he means that don't be a person who is seen as argumentative. Don't be a person who is constantly a problem. That is not a good witness for the church. Stand on truth, yes. Stand on sound principles, yes. But don't be a troublemaker. Don't be a problem because you hurt the cause of Christ. One commentator said, never allow the charge to be made that Christians are unprofitable people. Now, my friends, we need to recognize the truth of that statement. 
It does not benefit the gospel for society at large to say those Christians are completely unprofitable people. We ought to be the people who are the hardest workers when it comes to our livelihoods. It ought to be that an employer sees that you're a Christian. Even if they are not a Christian, they would say, at least I know they'll be honest. At least I know they'll, they'll do their job. At least I know they won't steal. At the very least, we as a community ought to have a reputation like that. But even in the larger community, as much as within us, we ought to desire that we'd be an asset to our community. An asset to our community. So, my friends, we need to recognize the call of God. And, and Paul makes this clear, doesn't he? He says, he commands all these things that you may walk properly toward those who are outside. That means outside the church. Walk properly to those outside the church. Have a good testimony amongst those outside the church. By the way, that's a command, isn't it, for elders? That they have a good testimony outside amongst the public. We need to make sure that all of us have that desire. It's mandated for elders, but it should be all of our desire that we have a good testimony to those on the outside, outside the church. Because, my friends, if we don't have a good testimony, it's going to be, I mean, God can do anything, right? We're not in any way limiting God's ability to do what he desires and wills to do. But God desires to use his people as his witnesses. But what good are you as a witness if your reputation is tarnished? God has called us to be good witnesses, to live in brotherly love. That brings me really to where I want to close today. Because it's amazing to me when you think about the early church, they were marked by two things. There were two things that marked the early church and separated them from the larger community that, in which they lived, their contemporary community. And what were those two things? First of all, their purity of life. And second of all, their love for each other. Now, we've spoken about this so often. The Jewish community was marked off throughout the Greco-Roman world by their love for God, what they considered it, piety, right? Their holy living, their purity of life. So the first one would have applied to the Jewish community, but they weren't well noted for their love for one another. What Paul has told the Christian community is they need to live in purity of life so that the outside world will have respect for them, but also that they have love one for the other. That they have love one for the other. That is what they are called to. That's what we're called to. Now, isn't that that great commandment that Jesus said earlier? We are to love God with everything we have. Well, how do we do that? We worship him. Right? The way you show love is to say something matters, something has worth. Worship is to give worth or glory to God. So how do we show that we love God with everything we have? We worship him, and yet we are called by the psalmist to worship him in the beauty of holiness. We are called to be holy as he is holy. And so in a very real sense, the purity of life that we are called to is out of love for the obedience of his commandments. It's a desire to live in holiness because our God is holy, to live lives of worship before him, to live before the face of God. And yet, the second part of that commandment is what? That we should love our neighbor as ourself. So that's that second point, isn't it? They were noted for their love toward each other. My friends, if we want to live out the great commands of God, we do it in this way. We have a purity of life because we want to show glory to God and obey his commandments, and we love one another. That is how we do it. That's not legalism. That's what God has called us to. Jesus says, if you 
love me, you'll keep my commandment. It's not legalism. If we are born again, empowered by the Holy Spirit, if we have the love of God poured into our hearts, what do we want to do? We want to serve and please God. That's what Paul just said, wasn't it? That by doing these things, we will walk in such a way that we will please God. We saw that in the last sermon. My friends, we are called to live lives that would would please God because we are living by faith and doing what he has commanded. And so, my friends, this is how we live out those commandments. And so that brings us to a question, a simple question. That's the command. So the simple question that follows it is, are we doing that? Are we living in brotherly love? Are we living in love one toward the other? Are we living in such a way that we desire to bring God, glory to God, because we love one another? That when there is a a little bump in the road in the church, we say, this is my brother. This is my sister. I'm not going to throw in the towel. Just because we have a bump in the road, this is not a a weighty theological matter. This is not a a primary theological matter. I'm going to stay and love my brother and sister because they're my brother and sister. When my brother or sister took the, the last drumstick at Thanksgiving last year, I didn't write them off. I didn't get rid of them. I didn't decide I'm not going to Thanksgiving next year. Might have been upset about it. Might have not liked it but they're still my brother, aren't they? They're still my sister. And yet Christians get upset over the smallest things and leave a church. They're not going to paint the sanctuary the color I want. They're not going to do uh, this VBS material instead of that one. I'm done. I'll find another church. Does that bring honor or glory to Christ? If you wondered, Paul's telling you, no, it doesn't. Live peaceably. Love one another. Realize that we really are family. We really are family. It's not a a, a made-up device. We don't just simply say, well, just consider us like family. No, my friends, if you're in Christ, you are family. I'm to care as much about you as I do my natural family. And if you take the words of Jesus seriously, maybe your spiritual family is more important, right? Jesus says, of those who do, do my Father's will, they're my family. So how are we doing on that score? Do we love one another as we're called to love? Do we esteem the other greater than self? Do we respect our brothers and sisters even when we don't always agree with them? Can we love one another and have that love not based on me getting my way all the time? Can we love one another because Christ has called us to love one another and not simply called us to do it, shown us how to do it? And not just shown us how to do it, We've been given the Holy Spirit to empower our ability to do it. My friends, let us love one another as God has commanded. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. And Father, we know it's a difficult call. There's times I'm not a lovable person. I know that. And we all go through those times. It can be difficult to walk this Christian life. Because, Father, we are all people who are simultaneously sinners and righteous because we stand in Christ. We are sinners saved by your grace through Christ Jesus. Help us to remember that's not just true of us, but of our brothers and sisters in the faith as well. And that when something happens that doesn't please us, something happens that that might offend us or, or hurt our feelings, that we are a people who say, just as we would in our own homes, that we are going to overlook it, we are going to get past it because we are family. 
because we are called to a brotherly love, a familial love, because in Christ we are all brothers and sisters. Father, help us to recognize that you've called us to this by faith and by your empowerment. We pray this in Christ's glorious name. Amen.